Asset Arrest, your global agent for accessing the property you can't afford. Hello, uh, I am just entering London City Island to go to a strange corporate event put on by a company called BizNow uh, in collaboration with the Bartlett School of Architecture. Um, it's about uh, the importance of placemaking for real estate. It's about what successful regeneration looks like and the speakers include various different planners, uh, developers, including the managing director John Mulryan of Ballymore. Um, so we're hoping to get a little, little chat with him. Um, and I have said I'm an architect. Uh, it cost £79 to go to this event, but I just emailed asking how long it lasted and she offered me a free place for some reason. Um, so maybe maybe it's going to be poorly attended, I hope not. Um, so it starts at 7.30 in the morning, therefore I could not convince anyone to go with me. Um, but if anyone out there has similar hobbies, then get in touch, maybe we can go to another one together. I'm dressed smarter than usual and I'm just going to try and... I don't know. I'm going to tell people I'm an artist and just, I have no idea. Um, and then there's like two hours of talks, presentations. Kind of looks like there might be some kind of discussion panel. I don't know. But I'm hoping there's opportunities to ask questions and make comments. Um, and yeah, it's being held in the weird art gallery on London City Island, Trinity Art Gallery, which I think is essentially maybe run by Ballymore. I don't know. It usually has really terrible kind of commercially art in it, bad paintings, photography by people that live on the island, art by bankers, uh, hot, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really hoping that the breakfast is decent. Note to self, go into residence lounge after and steal any Ballymore books that they have. Oh god, this is like going to party alone. <sighs> Looks like a bunch of men in suits. Just embarrassed myself by trying to get in a window. <laughs> It looks busy anyway. I should blend seamlessly into the crowds. Hi. 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 Uh, it's Laura Yule. Oh, right at the end too. <laughs> Yes. Uh, breakfast looks good. Okay. Um, can I have a coffee, please? Um, like a cappuccino, if it's possible. Um, oh milk, actually. Thanks. Yeah, I just went to visit some friends down there. Place called Plymouth. Yeah, it's really and now, ladies and gents, good morning. Please take your seats. We're going to be starting with the content in the next two minutes. Please take your seats. Thank you. Uh, okay. Good morning, Thanks, good morning. Um, For those of you who have had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Nick Hartman. Thank you for being here today. This is our third event since the pandemic. And it means the world to us to see you all at live events. Um, a huge thank you uh, before we get to Ballymore for having us here today. They're our hosts. Um, we really appreciate it. It's great to come out and see the space. There's going to be guided tours after the session as well around the site if you'd like some. Also, a big thank you to TAC Beechcroft, Rogerster Carbon Partners, Guardian Vehicle and Food Architecture, and of course our team, Beth and Anya, for putting this together. 
um, excuse me whilst I think through my notes. After the sessions, we're going to have tours at the site. Um, there's a couple of tours you can go on. The first is going to be of the English National Ballet, led by Roger Blatt, creative director of Ballymore. Then there's also a tour which is going to take you through the music studio, art galleries, and chocolate tears by Gareth Kitson, head of asset management body. If you want to go on the tours, all you need to do is go over to the desk just there afterwards, and you'll meet the team, and they will take you away. Um, before we begin, um, the owner of the art gallery, Ian, would like to say a couple of words. And Ian, thank you so much for having us. Hey, Nick. I always um, see, a, see a microphone and a set speaker set up in the gallery and I always feel prompted to, to grab the mic and just sort of say a few words. So, um, welcome to Trinity Art Gallery in London City Island. I'm, a, um, I'm an artist, um, so you might think it's quite unusual to see an artist at a place making a bit. Um, it's probably more unusual to see an artist up at this time in the morning, but that's okay. <laughs> Um, I've, I first met John Mar Ryan and, uh, and the Ballymore team four, over four years ago now, and we set up this art gallery, and all of a sudden I became involved in something called placemaking, which I've never really heard that term before. Um, and over that time we've had lots and lots of events and exhibitions and sort of cultural-based activities, and it's been a lot of fun. So my understanding with placemaking is it comes in two levels, and um, it seems to be on one side there's making a, uh, a new development as this is uh, really animated and, and looking good for people that, that want to come and explore and potentially live in a new venue. And we've really enjoyed working with Ballymore on that. And then there's this other side that I've come to know about placemaking, and that is the, the long term activities that will go on and really make a place home for many people. And you know, talking with people like Roger Black, who I saw here earlier, um, about what makes, maybe even me, what makes a place a home and what, what gives people an affinity with a place. When it's a brand new development, obviously that can take a lot of time. So um, I'm very interested to be here today and see what you guys, the, the experts, uh, are talking about in placemaking, not just initially, but for the long term, and to help people like yourself and many other arts, artists and creatives. Um, I've probably said about as much as I am allowed to say right now, but um, thank you all for turning up this morning and filling up with the seats, and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Um, and on that note, we've got a panel of real placemaking experts. So the first panel is going to be reshaping communities' devices in the city. Sherry Dolman, chair of the Urban Art Forum UK at the Urban Land Institute. Deborah Freeman Watt, head of Urban Opportunities Landscape. Roger Mandelin, CPE, joint head of Canada Water. John McCullough, partner of Rochester Carbons and Partners, and moderated by Christopher Stanwell, partner of Electronic at DAC Bookshop. So, Christopher, please uh, take it away. Thank you, Roger. Um, you, you were instrumental in, obviously, uh, the King's Cross redevelopment, and now you're at Canada Water. Is there anything you want to add on that? Well, I, uh, is that on? Yeah. I um, always say to people, think of Chiswick, not because it's you know, brilliant in, in all respects, but um, uh, I was lucky enough to live in Chiswick for 15 years or so my wife and, and kids, and for a, most of what we wanted to do, it was pretty good, and you could walk to most places or cycle to most places with 
could have done with better transport into central London. The district line is um, is still not great. Bring back memories every time I back on it um, and wait at Hammersmith or Hayes or Earlsbrook. Um, and getting out to the weekends in the car is uh, is also somewhat challenging. Um, so I just think in Chiswick with better places to work, a bit more office space. Uh, when I was leading Argent, we bid for a Chiswick Park, which uh, we didn't win. Um, we wanted to do a major mixed-use development with, uh, with workspace and uh, uh, residential and leisure and, and retail, and the planners at the time said over our dead body, we don't want mixed-use at Chiswick Park, you know, it should be offices. Um, I think it was very, very disappointing, although obviously Stanhope and Chiswick Park is, is great. So I've never really thought anything more than what's convenient for me and my life and what I want to do. And I, not in an arrogant way, I just think I'm not that unique about what I what I want from my life, whether it's you know, kicking all around with the kids or going to doctors or shops or getting in, in or out of places of work. So I think Chiswick is a, is a very good place, as are many, many other places where life is, is pretty good. And is there any specific that you want to say about what you're doing at Canada Water in this context? Well, I, you know, I thought King's Cross was um, about as good as it gets as a, as a developer um, and a very simple aspiration for the you know, 58 acres at, at King's Cross was to extend central London. You know, we looked uh, at other bits of central London, uh, what uses in central London we felt with try and include in King's Cross, but also much wider. And there's some work uh, we did in early 2000s where we looked probably almost a mile in some instances all around the periphery of King's Cross with with Camden Council looking at the social and education and arts facilities um, around because you know, we recognise and Camden recognise you know, you're not going to put everything in 15 acres so I, yeah, we didn't call it 15 minute city or 20 minute city you just thought if someone wants to live in that area you know, what, what's missing from day to day life Canada Water I just you know, we were talking about it earlier Christopher you know, to, to find another 53 acres in soon to become zone one apparently, um, something to do with raising money for transport for London. I think it's a lot closer to London, uh, central London, other zone one locations. Not to mention Battersea or Earl's Court, but um, you know, we are building a new town centre. Uh, that's the, that's the aspiration of Southwark. You know, they said Canada Wharf would be a new town centre. When I first went to see it, I, and I suddenly realised you know, we are building a new town centre with a high street. What is a town centre? You know, we're not going to build a Chiswick or a, or a Hammersmith or something, but it's just an extraordinary opportunity to just to think again. You know, what what would you put in a town centre? You know, what would all you guys? You know, like, you know, just think, do a big square and go. I'm building a new town centre. What what would you like in there? You know, various aspects, various times of your life. It's a huge privilege. You know, we're having you know, amazing fun working with great people. Telling us, you know, what should go in the town centre. But you know, my definition is it needs probably thirty thousand people coming and going every day to work, you know, to be educated. Probably thirty thousand people you know, living there, 
and 30,000 people coming and going every day because it's just an amazing place. And that, that would give it its urban intensity, which, uh, which to me is, um, is, is what cities and towns are all about. Thank you. You touched on education, which I think is often overlooked in this context, but we're sitting here in a cultural venue, and Sherry, I just wanted to know if you wanted to say from your particular expertise about what 15-minute neighbourhood meant in particular in Gales or Conflict Culture. Uh, sure. I mean, I think you, you touched on it already, Roger, which is, you know, it's like the wayfinding system. You know, the 15-minute city is really where where are you in that that entire space around it. So some of it's going to be within your red line of your development. Some of it's going to be outside of it. And like you say, how do you how do you understand that the way people experience life is is that way? Um, but I think you know one of the most important things about uh, what I've called the great experiment of the last sort of eighteen months is understanding what happened when things stopped and when we weren't allowed to do anything other than what was essential. What was missing and what felt dystopian. You know, the images of the sort of dystopian sensibility was the lack of people engaging out in the common spaces. It was the lack of cultural activity. It was the lack of the things that we call non-essential that made us feel a little bit dead. And so we've never had a time like that before where you could just say, cease any kind of cultural activity. Whether that's the professional arts or whether it's amateur, it doesn't matter. But that sense of people gathering for a reason other than just to consume or to deliver something was what made it um, quite apparent about what you know what was humanity and what was a sense that gave us a reason and a purpose to live. So yes, for us, I think what we learned from the Great Experiment was those non-essential aspects of our cultural life are really what are essential. And so it's important to consider how those are present. Um, and again, it's very different when you're looking at, uh, if you're looking at a place that is being redeveloped or your place keeping, or as opposed to place making or place shaping, or when you're trying to look at generating something from the start. Uh, but also, the last thing I just want to say is the English village is something that is quite extraordinary about sustainable life, and it's something to pay attention to in that model. It's something that makes a village really great is knowing that it's built up over a series of decades and centuries. So also leaving space to let the place and the people who are in it find what it is they're going to need to put into that space is also really, really important. Thank you. John, John, to bring your perspective to us. Uh, I think some really good points have been made already and it is, I mean, we look at, we look at kind of the idea of 15-minute city um, at all sorts of scales, whether we're looking at kind of the, the, the grand um, master plan of Paris um, for Anne Hidalgo or for the president, and looking at where where is infrastructure missing, and because as you know, the, the kind of Paris is probably one of the great 15-minute cities. You can go outside your front door of Paris, and each one of the neighbourhoods, depending on which arrondissement you're in, um, you can find everything you need within one kilometre, more or less, and that's your you know your butcher, your baker, your um, an art gallery, some place to eat, some place to drink, some place to socialise. And they probably don't have enough office, um, but generally an incredible number of touch points. I think it's something like 2,000 touch points in comparison to Houston that has about one. So you get in your car and drive for 15 minutes and find one. But I think the scale is really important. So you can look at, look at a city scale and then picking up on some of Roger's points. Um, you can also look at components of cities and repairing pieces of cities. Um, and how do we develop neighborhoods 
where people really want to be. And I think if you look at something like King's Cross, which is, is amazing, I love that in China, we've got to extend the centre of, of London. It's not that long ago that people like GlaxoSmithKline and British Airways were building their own kind of campuses, miles away from anybody, anybody else. And like when British Airways did, like really, you're going to have your own bank and dry cleaners and how exciting, but never see another human being other than somebody who works for British Airways. If there's anybody from British Airways here, I'm not having a problem. But now, if you think about the Facebook, the Googles, and the people that are trying to hire the best of the best coming out of university, where do they want to live? They want to live in King's Cross. They want to have a kind of life where they can work really hard, they can decide to eat at a bizarre hour, they don't need to commute nine to five, and they want to, they want to live in these really vibrant communities. And I think that's the point on planning is absolutely brilliant because at the moment all of our land areas are assigned a plan use and we need to change that. Um, and I think, you know, Chiswick is a village, London as a, as a great metropolitan area is a whole series of villages. So in many ways we're already doing it, we just need to reinforce our high streets, we were talking earlier about shopping locally, eating locally, and you know, you are kind of obliged to eat in the local restaurant, even if it's not that good, because you can't afford to let them go out of business. And so you kind of invest in your own neighbourhood. Um, and then, then you meet people, and you know, this today I, I think is my second event. Um, it's just so exciting to see real people that aren't on mute and aren't a bit fuzzy people are. And, and so therefore we need to think, why do we get together? And that's where you bring in the culture of the aspects. It's not just go somewhere to work and go somewhere to sleep. It's all of the others, all the non-essentials. Um, yeah, so it's just, um, that's very, very helpful. I mean, from my perspective, after the lockdown, one of the first things I did was when I started coming back in, in September last year, um, it was actually to do cultural events. And I was quite shocked in terms of where our office is right in the centre of the city of London and how deserted it was and it felt, you know, like 28 days later you'd have seen those scenes. But that is a, an example of an area that is drawn totally um, all in one direction in terms of maybe a bit of culture but very much an office-based um, environment. Where we are here, I suppose, will be 50 minutes to probably to get to Canary Wharf. But there's, there's also, obviously, a continued drive from net zero and, and we've got to address that as an issue. Um, 15 minute neighbours to me play an important part of that because it minimises sort of what's termed hyper mobility and I just wanted to sort of just explore whether any of you had a particular view on that in terms of what are you doing in terms of your developments to, 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 to bring that sort of the net zero aspect into this, this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, obviously a very valid question, a very hot topic to focus minds as Glasgow coming up shortly as well. For us at Landsec now, before any planning or any development starts, we, we have our sustainability team in looking at it and, and providing a kind of a framework. So all of our design and development teams have to, from day one, right from inception, work within a framework that gives us kind of guardrails, you know, as to, as to what, what is permissible and what isn't. But I think kind of more importantly, I suppose thinking about, you know, what I'm looking at is repurposing some of our shopping centres that are not really kind of fit for, fit for use anymore. And um, it's thinking about how do you turn a very urban, highly densely built area and rethink it and probably sort of break it up and produce more green space, more public realm, more areas where people can play and have social time, etc. And, and look as well at um, how can we meaningfully introduce greater 
you know, the term urban biodiversity, but how can we partner with people like London Wildlife Trust, etc., and really make sure that right at the heart of these repurposing sort of our centres, that this sort of health and well-being and the green space and open space, which as we've all recognised in the last sort of year and a half, is incredibly important if you're living in an urban area. Um, so that's one of our big kind of goals. So it's not it's, it is about net zero carbon, but it's also about really looking at how do we get kind of proper green space back into very densely built um, areas. Thank you. Sarah, do you want to go? There's um, a project we're working on right now in, in Iceland, and it's the whole section, uh, the Cadeco section around the airport. And so we're looking at the phases of a master plan that you know, go 25, 30 years in, into the future and trying to understand also how we can phase it so as technology continues to advance um, that we look at different modes of transport. And you're talking about a very small country where people are used to being able to drive because let's face it, the weather is not necessarily um, sunny all the time. Um, but the idea of the different forms of mobility, because of course not everybody is able to ride a bicycle purposely, but also the ways of moving smaller cargo around, and that's happening in all of the master planning and actually becoming part of even the cultural strategies is understanding the, the public spaces and what's going to be moving through the public space. You know, now it's not just car and perimeter and people in the middle and maybe a bicycle. You think about cargo bikes. You think about, you know, people who are getting their kids to school now that have these vehicles where their bicycles have three or more. So it starts to actually impact also how you design the public space in between, how people will be moving, where they might stop, the kind of bicycle parking that you need, how you need that when you're thinking about the cultural infrastructure, um, of where people will be able to park and use them. And I think one of, that's one of the really important things about the 15-minute city also is, while we encourage people to walk and to bike, you need to encourage people to stop as well, because if they just move quickly through the area, they're not gonna stop at the shops. And um, as we all know, bicycle parking and the inventiveness of it and the safety of it and the cleanliness of it and everything is gonna be absolutely key to making central spaces uh, successful. And I think linked to that, then the importance of our pavements, as you say, it's, it's not about getting through really quickly and making it efficient, but it's actually dwell time, it's building communities, and it's, it's people spending time on, on local pavements or sidewalks, as Jane Jacobs would have called it, and that becomes your um, your kind of neighbouring uh, policing system, where you look after yourselves and each other, because there's just a presence on the street, an active shop frontage, rather than things that are shuttered at the weekend or in the evenings and closed. Um, and again, I think that the, the positivity of moving away from kind of a nine-to-five culture, more of a more towards a twenty-four-hour culture, although we need to be careful with noise because I was always trying to sleep. That things that have different senses of, of ownership on my street at different times and just keep it alive are so important for our communities. Of course, I mean, one of the um, interesting discussions I had last week with some um, city council who's trying to build a totally car-free. Um, 1992 Kyoto Summit, you know, I was reading the article from 
my old colleague at Argent saying we didn't really concentrate that much on the carbon and energy efficiency at King's Cross, but that's probably because from 1992 I thought the world was looking at carbon very seriously and carbon reductions, which is, uh, I don't usually use the CBE, someone obviously put that on, but that was the services to sustainable development. We were trying very hard to look at energy consumption and reducing car usage and the need to travel and electrification of trains and all of those kind of things. Um, and then the world seemed to completely forget about it and it's now come back, obviously, big time and politicians are looking to to try and find easy solutions that uh, obviously voters don't get too pissed off about. I think banning cars or thinking about car free is, is not going to work. Um, yeah. I hope we will look back in 20, 30 years' time at our allocation of road space in cities, a bit like we look back at how we used to let people smoke in pubs, because there is enough road space in almost all of our cities to reallocate space for cyclists and pedestrians and electric this and electric that and scooters. Um, and we will look back and think, you know, how do we let people drive around in these you know, one and a half, two ton boxes with four empty seats pumping out poisonous fumes into kids' mouths? It's not, not anti-car because we've spent the last 70, 80 years building most of our you know, residential accommodation, assuming people are going to have a car outside their door. You know? So I think we've got to become much smarter about when you use a car and when you transition from a car. Um, and so coming up with we're going to ban cars or you know, do a development without cars I think is is not going to work uh, there will be a backlash because you know, people are still going to have cars that become zero emission and hopefully less um, carbon intense in their manufacture but um, yeah, I've been cycling for 35 years I was talking to Steve McAdam you know, it doesn't feel much safer out in the streets um, Super highways are brilliant, but when they stop, you, know, you still are um, in in quite harsh circumstances. I certainly wouldn't want my kids when they were ten to be riding a bike now. And they're now uh, a lot older than that. I wouldn't want them, you know, whenever they go out and push bike, and my wife goes out and push bike. I feel very nervous about that. And I think we need to become smart about allocating road space. And once people get on a bike or a scooter and they feel safe. They're going to do what happens to me every morning when I get on the bike. I just go like, this is bloody amazing. They're like, does anyone else know about these things called bicycles? You only have to put in a little bit of energy and you go like, they're the most efficient form of transport known to mankind. People are going to discover the bike. We've got to facilitate to allow them to feel safe on the bike. And just picking up on that point of, of no cars, um, that you know we've known for years that every time you add like a, another lane to the M25 or something, what does it do? It fills up with more cars. And we need to do the exact opposite for, um, or the same for bikes. Make, if you make more room for bikes and make it safer, um, then more bikes will come. Not to quote um, Kevin Costner, was it? A few drinks. Um, but I think we're at a kind of pivot moment at the moment, uh, and I think rather than trying to build a community where you ban cars. You know, the, the adoption of electric cars is, is, is changing really quickly. And I think people want to, although people like the idea of innovation and change, people are also quite indoctrinated in what they believe. As you say, so many houses are designed, so many developments are designed good where to go with the car. And I think what we need to do is just slowly pivot away from that. And I think that the, the pivot towards electric, greening the grid has been easy, because in effect we didn't really have to do very much, right? 
Um, so, you know, we've pivoted from coal to, to or we've changed from coal to gas. The next change is going to be harder. And the ones beyond that are actually where people really, really need to change their behaviour. And that includes not doing the things that we all know we shouldn't be doing. Um, and maybe, you know, flying everywhere all the time just for the hell of it. Um, but living more locally, um, sourcing your products locally. But I think rather than developments with no car, it should be encouraging electric cars. And maybe that's where you get into tax breaks to encourage people to change their behaviour. Um, in the way, uh, you know, in, in a long time ago now, there was there was huge tax breaks for getting married. So young couples not married because they can afford a bigger house. And it kind of, you know, you can drive things through through incentivisation. And I think that's what we should do. I think also as well, it's about working in partnership with the transport. So one of our, our developments up in, in sort of Finchley is working in, in partnership with TfL, so trying to provide better connection between two main stations through a green walk and sort of cycleway. And I, again, I, I, I with the panel, I think I don't agree in, in banning cars, but I think you need to make public transport systems better, more attractive, and probably cheaper as well for people to, to be encouraged to use. So again, in a lot of things that we're looking at, we will look at where are the transport nodes? Um, <clears throat> is the local council wanting to work in partnership to improve that facility for people to make it cleaner, safer, better experience? Um, and sort of draw people into using better public transport rather than that kind of stick of saying, you know, you can't have a car because if you live in a big city like here, fine, you know, that, that, that kind of works, but, but it's disregarding a lot of, of, of the UK living areas that's pretty inaccessible by, by public transport, I think. And she was a really good point. Like, all the, the tram system in the centre of Melbourne is free. So within that kind of that golden mine, it's free. Just use the tram. It's really so important. They've solved the problem for you. No, I think um, incentives is clearly something that, uh, you know, as a planning lawyer, that you get the planning system gets beaten up all the time, but it's also got to be considered in the context of tax. Or even in the context of cycling, I remember when I moved down to London, it was an active decision to get on a bike, and I was terribly fearful of it. Um, but one of the things that's me, I just quickly got used to it, just gave an amazing drilling buzz, but in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Hague, in the Hollands, I have a friend who lives there, there is, they just reversed the liability, so for cyclists, it gets hit by a car, it's automatically decided that the car driver's fault, and that just changes the mindset. It's just these are the simple changes. But uh, can I just turn um, to the unintended consequences of the 50 mile city in terms of we're planning for this now? We've obviously got the idea that everything is much more local and, and uh, decentralized. Um, do, you, do you think there are any sort of unintended consequences that will come from that in terms of, particularly, for example, the impact on? The centre of the West End, or exactly the city, or indeed Canary Wharf. I don't know if you want to sort of mention Sherry, do you want to say anything on that? Yes, I mean, you could look at it at the macro scale too, I suppose. And um, you could say, what happens if you get too insular? You know, so we're looking at the ramifications of our choice of Brexit. Um, but it is important, you know, you have to think about how you can strengthen um, your neighbourhood, but also where you need larger exchange and where you need other influences to keep your thinking uh, dynamic. So one of the things that is very important is not to think that your own is the only thing and to become focused only on that. You have to understand that one of the things that's great about cities, one of the reasons why so many people move to cities is because of the unexpected encounters that you have 
with people from different backgrounds and from different cultures and different ways of living that help you to open up how you could rethink either yourself or your lives. So it's very important when we think about bolstering up the local that we understand that's not in contradiction of something that is larger or international. And so it might be that what we're thinking about is the scale of activity in those places, you know, the scale of cultural provision in, in particular places that are close to you, and when you need a larger sort of city center, a larger gathering point. Because let's face it, you know, when it comes to the cultural sector, for example, you know, if you're going to put on an opera, it's a significant amount of people that are needed to be able to do it, a significant amount of people that need to gather to be able to see it if it's performed at that level. And so you're always going to need those places where you can have larger activities happen, larger gatherings take place. And so the important thing is how you understand where you need those larger clusters and where you have the smaller ones, and how they work to balance each other out and create a greater ecosystem, rather than thinking it's just a binary of one is good and the other one is bad. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think when, when we were talking earlier, if you if you can live your life in kind of within a fifteen minute circle, whether it's walking, cycling, or public transport, why do we come together? We come together for things like this. But the kind of the traditional, um, or maybe you know what a lot of us do on a, on the weekend is you go into the centre town to, to go to one of the incredible galleries in this city, which we're very lucky are, are free. But if you think about the British Museum, that has about nine million objects, they probably display about 90,000 objects at any one time. And, you know, they're like 15th worst, uh, I don't know, mummy from the from certain period. Could be the best thing ever seen in Swansea or Ealing, for that matter. Um, and I think it's the importance of then, you know, what, what are the role of these huge national institutions? Where do we then get our kind of our, our, our cultural connectivity? Um, uh, because it's, it's some of those points as well that maybe you accidentally put yourself in the, in the wider sphere of where we are, you know, as a civilization, as an individual. When you go to um, when you go to a, a gallery, and so I think I don't think they I don't think they need to be exclusive, and I don't think they should be enemies of each other. I think it's kind of a an approach to living, but it's not a gospel. Thank you, Roger. Do you have any comments on that? We like these um, new facts, don't we? I'm not saying fifteen minutes is use a fad, but the expression fifteen minutes is use a fad and be a number of these events uh, all over the country talking about how exciting it is. We already all mentioned that you know, this has been around for years and there are plenty of examples and it's, it's a good thing just to look at what's missing from from existing places and what should be in new places to, to complement or add to that. But there is, you know, I think if we stop you know, wanting to get out of our little bubbles um, you know, and I'm going to want to carry on with my whether it's half an hour or an hour cycle commute or whether it's a train journey up to Birmingham or Manchester or a train journey to Paris. That, to me, being able to get into the centre of town, centre of other urban places um, is, I don't know whether it's more important, but it's it's as important as as the 15-minute city. I would never have wanted to work in Chiswick. We live in Richmond now. I wouldn't want to work in Richmond. You know, I want to come into urban centres to meet you know, amazing, amazing people. And we never had a doubt that King's Cross would be successful in due course because we came up with that statement: more people from more destinations in one hour and one seat of public transport will be able to get to King's Cross than anywhere else in Western Europe. Now you go like, well, why is Carrie Water going to be successful? Because actually, the demographics 
of under 35 year olds here living in these parts of towns in the southeast and the northeast and the north of central London. More people under the age of 35 in Greater London will be able to get a can of water in you know, 45 minutes on public transport or a bicycle. And if you're an employer or if you want to create a new you know, expanding optimistic, you know, whether it's life science, whether it's tech, or whether it's you know, any other business, most of the people you employ are going to be under 35, and Canada Water will be you know, the most accessible place for that demographic. So that's why, that's actually why I wanted to join British Land, because the opportunity to make uh, 53 acres urban, but it's not urban at the moment when you come there, it's very suburban. You know, can we get you know, those 30,000 people coming and going every day to make it urban? And then the culture, and then the restaurants, and then the music events and, and, uh, and everything will be much more viable um, and then I think people living there will be uh, much more appreciative of, of all of those things that that urban intensity brings but not not getting out of your 15 minute environment will be a disaster <coughs> for humanity so I think you know, getting transport right, public transport right uh, and I'm sorry I've just the solution, or a solution, is interchange, transport interchanges, whether it's a car to a bike, or whether it's a car to a train, or whether it's a bike to foot, or whether it's foot to a scooter. And the UK is rubbish compared to some of our European friends. Um, and planning doesn't help with that. Planning can't look at land where transport intersects and allocate space to allow people to park their car, you know, found that in the Thames Valley trying to do a big traffic interchange on Junction 11 at the M4, you, you probably know it, um, Christopher, and you know, just, oh, you can't do that because it's Greenbelt. A lot of our transport intersects in Greenbelt, uh, and until this country can actually look at getting from one mode of transport to another more easily, we're going to have real trouble. I agree. I mean, from my perspective, I think people need to be more flexible with their attitudes and what is in Greenbelt and sustainability, and also the density and the mixture of uses. I think really needs to come to the fore. I think there's sometimes still too much rigid thinking about that. I'm going to open up to some questions shortly, but uh, Derek, did you want to add anything to that in terms of? I think back to Sherry's point. I don't think the 15-minute city or neighbourhood needs to be kind of exclusive thing, and then you just sit in another bubble. Um, I think there is always a desire, particularly from maybe younger sort of generations as well, to get into a big city and the bars. I know certainly I grew up in a, a very small town in the west coast of Scotland. I was desperate to get to, to London and, and experience the buzz of big city culture and meeting people. So I don't think in any shape or form it's the, the death of, of big, vibrant urban centres. But I think what this, again, the last 18 months has shown us is that there are more possibilities, there's more opportunities, and maybe you can shape your life in a slightly more flexible way and you can get to enjoy both local and a more kind of bigger urban experience. Indeed, I mean, what we're really avoiding for is basically dormitory towns and having a mixture of uses. That's yeah, that's um, So, I'm going to open up to any questions. Does anyone want to pursue the question you want to ask? Them? Who have been rapidly over the last 10 years 
converted to residential, with a big looking surface with a light bulb and rapid version. And that this notion has helped them reassess because they've been converting office buildings to housing, or they were looking to sell some wonderful 60s buildings that they've now reassessed and seen the potential to create that sort of mixed use transfer to keep work to provide facilities for those who are working remotely because they're going to central London every so often and to place them as a result to create a hub, to create a, a creative hub. So I think that the notion that we might all accept is quite useful in certain circumstances to um, help people reassess their, their time centres. So not a question. No, no, thank you. I mean, um, for those that didn't hear, I, I, I think it is useful because, I mean, fair enough, you could say this is a cliche, and as Roger says, it's been around forever, but people do become rigid in their thinking, and if you say to people, it's a fact, but wildly different experiences. So, so in my experience, there are spray junior plans out there who've never really done anything. They, they're not used to sort of different concepts, so the fact that this, we're having this conversation is helpful in that respect. Um, I think the other, the other thing that we've all discovered that's really necessary is an uh, equity of smart technology. So what have we all discovered? We all need a decent Wi-Fi bandwidth, right? But this is really important in how we think about that kind of infrastructure that we're building in. And now it doesn't matter whether it's residential or whether it's commercial or it's going to be a mixed use. We need this equity of access to technology. And that also is going to allow us that flexibility to go between whether you're working from home or in an office. I mean, right now the irony is I have better connection at home, but I want to be in the office. Uh, but if we can start planning that infrastructure also into all of our places, that's also going to give an equity of opportunity to different districts, different boroughs, and different economic backgrounds to being able to have the same ability to reach out to the world and possibly facilitate their own businesses in their lives. So I think that's a crucial element to what is going to be successful. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we're working on a side of the moment that's... that's um part of which is reserved for Crossrail 2. Crossrail 1 still isn't open. And you think, oh, I love the idea of Crossrail 2, but actually what we really need is broadband. You know, up to yeah. broadband everywhere. And, and even High Speed 2, which will bring our cities closer together, I think, cut the travel time of about half an hour. But is there Wi-Fi on the train? I'll spend a half hour on the train if I can make a call and I can be on Wi-Fi rather than I'm under a tunnel. Uh, Sorry, I just to say, I think your point about particularly on the boroughs thinking about other sort of uses aside from residential because it's often quite easy to think about a repurposing of a scheme and I'm thinking you know, very residentially led but actually creating a mixture of uses and creating commercial space I think is really important because it also hopefully will open up um, areas for talent in, in different areas of cities and, and across the country that maybe don't have access to getting into central London or whatever else and it's sort of I think hopefully then creates employment, opportunity, aspiration, um, and is a really important part of the, of the kind of mixed-use development and the approach that the developers hopefully will take in the future. So, so Deborah, just on that, in terms of, do you have challenges in terms of approaching local authorities and saying, we want to open up, so for example, collaborative workspace or a facility just like this, and whether you have to, is it easy to convince them, or is it more of a challenge? I think, you know, the best situations are working in partnership with, with, with local councils and, and on the whole we have really good relationships with, with, with councils and 
you know, usually you're working towards the sort of common better good. It's, it's good for it's a win-win situation. I think where it, it gets complicated and where there can be frustrations is when, you know, as usual, when, when politics get involved and, and developers are seen as the, as the big bad organisation. And, and really, genuinely, you know, we would prefer to work, say, in partnership with local councils in a, in a kind of win-win situation. We want to be able to enable uh, better employment prospects in, in, in a lot of these areas that we are looking at because it back to all the points that we've talked about, you know, there's no point building lots of flats and um, having a kind of a dormitory community because that doesn't create what we're trying to talk about here, so it doesn't create a proper community, kind of a 24-hour culture, so not exactly what, what, what we're aiming for, but, but that, that buzz and that vibrancy of village and neighbourhood life. The, the enhanced um, planning opportunities now, sometimes certain authorities have this ability to have more of a collaborative relationship with the developers. Those have been incredibly helpful and productive because intentionality can be delivered in those discussions as opposed to it just being a negotiation. And that's where often you can find that there is that, that synergy between the desire for the, um, for the support of skills and employment and enhancement that can happen. So the authorities that have been able to do that sort of PPA plus or another version of that have allowed more, uh, more of those shared objectives to be noted, and then to work together towards realising. Thank you. What, Richard, in terms of um, Canada Waters, are you able to share any licenses or what other kind of work with them um, as authority? They had a very clear um, planning policy in place saying, please build a, a new town centre. Exactly what the mix of uses um, were, were kind of left to us um, to, to an extent. Um, we, particularly I, was very um, concerned to make sure to, to get that urban intensity that there, there was a critical cluster of, of workspace. We used to call it offices, didn't we? But we now call it workspace. Um, and went through a similar process at King's Cross where you think, well, what is an appropriate cluster? You know, how big does it have to be? And we kind of got... It has to be probably at least 3 million square feet, you know, 30,000 people. Yeah, that's quite a lot coming and going. If it was 5 million square feet, yeah, that would probably be better. Um, and you can look at other places around the country and around Europe and go, yeah, that, that has got the urban intensity to get the bars and the restaurants and the cultural facilities people on the street. And so that we're very amenable to that. You know, they said, if you think, you know, this is a place, you know, where people are going to come, you go, well, they are, because the transport system there is, is extraordinary. Um, and a developer adjacent to us has just put a planning application in for another million. So, so we're going to get four million square, up to four million square feet of workspace there, which is, which is a bigger cluster than King's Cross. And I think anyone that goes to King's Cross now, a lot of the offices are not obviously not occupied now, but you know, some of them haven't been occupied because they've been under construction. I think there is enough urban intensity there for for the bars and the, of course there is, you know, for the bars and restaurants. Um, and Southwark have been very amenable to that. You know, their, their policy was great. It's taken a long time, but that's not kind of Southwark's problem. That's just London. And planning has just become more complicated and more time-consuming. Nothing to do with you and your profession, you know, but... Um, <laughs> It's all of us, you know, we just want to ask more questions and have more demands, uh, and it just takes a long time as planning that cost more money. 
So it's taken us just as long at County Water to get planning than it did at King's Cross, where there wasn't a policy in place, which is maybe worth looking at at some point at another seminar. <laughs> planning seminar, that would be really boring. Sure, it's, yeah, okay. Sorry, it's a question at the back then. Yeah. Uh, isn't it the case that outer boroughs probably have the most to gain by the 15-minute city concept, and yet the development economics are probably that inner boroughs are going to simply enhance their offer? If that's the case, what do what you do about it? Uh, yes, is the answer to that, I think. But um, um, I think make better cycling in the outer boroughs, seriously, because you know, the outer boroughs do tend to have more cars going a bit faster on streets that just feel a bit unsafe. Um, yeah, sorry, I keep going back to Chiswick, but obviously Chiswick Park here has been a major success in the big office development. But all of these outer boroughs could, could produce more and better workspace <coughs> um, and people being able to cycle, cycle to them and walk to them, you know, whether it's you know, 15 minutes from their house would be a good thing. So I think if the outer boroughs really think about accessibility and, and walking routes in the same way that some of the inner, inner boroughs have done, you know, the best, the slightly less mad cycling facilities are generally in inner London, aren't they? You know, the super highways and the, and the, um, you know, the quiet ways and uh, pavement improvements and stuff. I think the outer boroughs are I think it's also important um, to emphasise that we don't want them all to be the same. I think I think all of these various neighbourhoods should have their own distinct um, offer, whatever that is, because you, you know nothing worse than creating the same thing 15 times over. So I think the the inner boroughs will will always be slightly different, but they're going through a different kind of they they call it the, the donut at the moment, where the birth rate is declining hugely in the in the particularly in the central five six boroughs because people are having less kids there, and therefore there is a better offer um, that the outer boroughs can benefit from from people who don't want to live like that, who you know, want a bit more space, maybe want to have a big family. So I, I don't think they all need to be the same. Yeah, it's, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. Um, and what's the great sales adage, you know? It's make it easy for someone to say yes. Uh, find a way to encourage people to do as opposed to say don't. So, you know, hitting on that idea of authenticity or discovering what's distinct, you know, emphasize that. Make it easier for someone to desire to stay there. It's, it's, it's what feels different uh, about a place, how you can identify it, how you can easily say where you are or why you've chosen to be there. That's what's going to make a difference. There's an amazing statistic, sorry, I was um, met with Quintain up in, in Wembley where they do lots of um, village rent. And they have a statistic that if somebody's in their built units in one of their buildings, if they make two friends um, over the period of their tenure, which is, I think, uh, basically a year, they're something like four times more likely to renew. And it's a pretty terrifying thought, I think, that for in a whole year in a building, you've made two friends. And that means there's an awful lot of people not making two friends, um, which I think is, is one, of the, one, of the, one of the, I suppose, the scary things about the city. Um, but I think that's why all of these neighborhoods not being, trying to be the same thing, trying to offer a, a, a different value or maybe a different focus, um, it's really important that, because, you know, we all have a sense of identity. Well, I don't, but... <laughs> <laughs> that is quite terrifying. But I have to say, built directness and asset classes is a long way to go. It needs to be more flexible as far as, I suppose, just one or two treasure plans. It needs to be sort of more addressing families as well. But, um, 
on the borough point um, at the Oxford Planning Conference, positions just the lawyers and spares as well. There was a presentation by um, Epping Council as far as and they are actively greening their borough and turning spaces like golf courses into reservoirs for biodiversity in their game, and that is their USP. So I think you know that, there is it's worthwhile watching that talk <coughs> to um, explore about an opportunity because I think and, I, and I've done some work with some people in terms of some of the northern cities where they are actually just greening their cities because they realise there is nothing else that really works in there. Um, that's an opportunity. Are there any other questions? Thanks, Lee. Very interesting panel. Just, just a question on, on change, really. I'm just trying to work out how different this panel would have been a year and a half ago. So the question is to the panel, on the schemes you're working with, what material reconsiderations have you made, if any, kind of moving into a post-COVID era? I'm just trying to work out kind of specifically. Are people doing stuff differently, or is it just an evolution? Uh, there's a lot more emphasis on uh, co-location or cooperative high streets, understanding how spaces uh, may share different types of, of class usage. You know, so a shop may also be something that is servicing, which is also a bar, which is also a creative workspace. And so there's a lot more understanding of these spaces um, that share and, and knowing that we also have to go to different local authorities and say, you're going to have to loosen up and readdress what the class usage is. But those economic models are very important. And the other thing is the fluctuation and the ability to support a lot more of the temporary smaller businesses uh, into the footprint and how you actually build that again into the master plan. Um, that there have been so many quick, inventive, particularly food-related opportunities that have happened with small shops and everything that want really short leases. And how, how do you build that into the framing and how do you have those different questions as far as asset managers? And then, then there's also on the cultural sector, there's been a lot of consideration about the kind of governance and how you support things over a longer term. And there's more interest in having cultural entities on a longer term lease because they're more likely to keep a constancy than say a big retail now. You know, we watch the H&Ms and such, the, the sure bets remove in a second but the cultural entities can stay for the longer term, and sometimes those can give you the, um, the sense of permanency of identity of place. So those are some of the shifts we've been experimenting with. One of the things that we are looking at the delivery of a, a solution to is that it, get, it links in a different way to the human city. Is obviously the, it was on the rise anyway of deliveries, you know, Deliveroo, Amazon, whatever else, and probably, pre-pandemic, last mile logistics, certainly to me, meant kind of re re repurposing, I suppose, semi-industrial areas and the kind of outskirts of London. Now, we have so many inquiries for unused bits of our shopping centre to be taken over by um, a variety of last mile logistics. We really need last mile, I mean, it's kind of under the 50 minute delivery point. So when we're thinking about what do we do with meanwhile use in some of our centres, um, particularly maybe some basement car parks, this kind of thing. So we're moving away from, from encouraging car use or they just aren't really used. Um, this is becoming a, a hugely kind of demand-led part and we're trying to work out in our, in our repurposed mixed-use developments 
how do we integrate this and how do we make the experience for people living in the residential areas just easier? You know, rather than getting all your Amazon deliveries tradition to the office and sort of all in the post room, how do you make it a, a much more um, efficient way, I guess, in, in, in your apartments? But that's a brilliant point, isn't it? Because you think of all of the Amazon deliveries coming in, let's say, into the city, an EC1, and then everybody's taking them home on the tube, and they've made that journey <laughs> twice, and they just don't need to. And that's so exactly. that last mile, um, and I think focusing is so important. Good, um, good question. Um, other than last mile urban logistics, of which British land has been in a frenzy of activity, um, we are actually doing some stuff now, having... Uh, uh, having bought car parks and things like that, so it's quite exciting. Yeah. But yeah, very all retailers were forced into a big time, weren't they? And very few of them made any money from it, so they're all very excited about working with us very closely, trying to trying to do that better. Um, the simple answer to your question is: we haven't done anything at Canada Water, and before you think, well, that's pathetic because the world's completely different. If you think, what were the main concerns we had? urbanisation five, six years ago here when I arrived at British Land. The big issues were um, pollution, air, air pollution, you know, um, access to green space and physical activity, you know, the ability to be able to get to places you know, on, a, on a more flexible uh, diurnal basis. You know, people weren't all arriving at nine, you know, Monday to Friday, you could, you could see that that happening. Um, buildings that you know were more adaptable in terms of workspace environments, you know, fresh air and opening windows and obviously uh, environmental sustainability and, and the car agenda. And so at Canada Water we we look we've got 120 acres and you know anyone who hasn't been there please see me afterwards you know, and you know, arrange a trip because King's Cross suffered from everyone you know, over the age of 40 knowing it was just you know, horrible full of sex and drugs and crime built and they just kind of patted me on the head for about 12 years and said good luck it would never be anything other than a you know, shithole uh, genuinely they used to say that I'd say 99 out of 100 you go people come to Canada Water they've got no idea where it is you know, including me really um, and we've got 120 acres of park and wooden dock um, and so, and we've also got some cool viewing corridors. So our buildings are generally six stories, you know, connected to all these green spaces. Uh, we were, oh, you can open windows because it's quiet. So all of our ventilation systems were you know, on the floor with much more fresh air. And so when when you look back and say, you know, should we have been doing anything different because of the pandemic? Not in that respect. You know, we might be putting some more ultraviolet filters on them on the air coming in, but that's fine. Um, the other the other thing that has just really helped, I think, this is my only kind of positive thing about the pandemic. Yeah, back to King's Cross, back to Brindley Place, you know, so this is 25, 30 years ago, you know, we were trying to do innovative deals, innovative deals with retailers and particularly F&B, turnover deals, you know, no long-term commitments, working in partnership. The whole of King's Cross, you know, every one of those retail and um, F&B occupiers has got some kind of turn. A lot of pushback from retailers, you know, a lot of retailers go, oh, I'm never showing you my accounts, you know, piss off, you know, I'm just going to pay a rent. There's still a lot of that about, but I think that's accelerated now, much more collaborative working between landlords and occupiers. I think that's a good thing. So that's now kind of almost embedded. But experiential retail and retail's changing the internet. Come on, this is, you know, this is 20, 30 years ago. 
you know, I've got papers, I've got strategies, so you look at King's Cross retail strategy written you know, 15, 16 years ago. This was about the internet's going to you know, revolutionise retail. Yeah. You know, retail is going to change radically. You know, online delivery is going to change. And it's kind of like been watching a slow car crash. It's now crashed and everyone's gone, blimey, it really has changed. So I think that's good because finally you know, we can think about the things that we've been thinking about for 15 years a bit more seriously and get on and do it. Thank you. Just, just conscious of the time, and if I could just add one bit on that question, is, is it's flexibility in technology, and, and then that's been the key thing in terms of, for example, like this abolished presenteeism. We are now completely flexible in terms of where people work and cognizant of what they want to do. And I think people need to think about designing houses, for example, they've got that quite storage, and it's a place where you can live because of and work, uh, because we have found a lot of challenge, particularly with our younger colleagues. As far as they're literally some people working in their, their beds, and that has to, you know, that wasn't good for their mental health at all. And I think in terms of designing schemes, that needs to be brought to the forward in terms of providing that flexibility coming forward. If you don't know when people are going to be in the office, though, you know, how do you give them their people to be fine? <laughs> but not <Yeah>. to it's a team's call. I don't know on that. Oh, that's really cruel. Well, well, we rec- well, I haven't done, we haven't done a P45 at all, but certainly I have recruited about five people on teams and only now, this month, I've met them physically. So you know, the, the idea of doing that has just changed radically. I hardly ever used teams 18 months ago, and now I'm on it every day. And actually, as you said to me, oh, we were speaking to each other on a phone call, and I'm quite. That was nice, wasn't it? Good looking guy, but you know, like, it was so nice to get a phone call. Thank you. Okay, on that note, we'll say a very big thank you to, to Christopher and the Reshaping Communities panel. Yeah. Oh, has that got the... discussion, 15, 15 minute cities, 15 minute centres, um, which fundamentally uh, is all about placemaking. And we all know that placemaking is, is essential. Uh, it's, 
uh, it, it's very, very important. It's, it's potentially quite intuitive, but um, we also potentially need to try and understand how you value placemaking. And that's the purpose of this panel discussion today. Um, placemaking, obviously, uh, there's, there's various ways to value placemaking. Uh, clearly, the developers will be very interested in quantifying the, the commercial value. Um, but in, in addition to that, there are other elements of placemaking that we perhaps ought to drill into today as well. And that's obviously the community value, the environmental value, and the social value. And how do we do that? So, without further ado, I'm going to kick off today with a question. Really just to try and understand what tools um, the industry has and, and KPIs um, in, in, that they use to really understand the value of placemaking in the industry. And that's with regard to both, obviously, as I say, the social value, community and commercial value, environmental value, and also the occupier demand. Um, Ed, can I start with you, please? I'm just glancing around, but you call my eye first. Ed, could you give us the experience, please, with your... your uh, your background is obviously you are the project director of Silvertown, um, and perhaps give us some, some examples of how you use uh, me metrics and, uh, and indices to, to measure the value of placemaking on, on that scheme in particular. Great, thanks, man. Happy to. Um, so I work for an organisation called Lendlease, and we kind of specialise in large scale mixed use urban regeneration projects um, globally. Uh, they tend to have life cycles of about 10 to 30 years. And hence, placemaking and understanding value of placemaking is critical to our success in delivering those projects and also to winning new opportunities. Um, so, we tend to look at value through many different lenses, and can include safety and other aspects, but in particular the ones you drew out, Dan, in terms of um, commercial, social, economic, and environmental. So first, on commercial, what we do is we, during a lifetime of our projects, we track value of our um, buildings uh, against each asset class through the life cycle of the project. And we compare that to the normal house price inflation or general price inflation in our local area to then overlay key placemaking initiatives that we introduce during the life cycle. An example is Elephant Park, our scheme in Southwark, where we've done that with um, our house price inflation. So we compared our, our homes and prices they, they inflate to with, with the local house price inflation. We've demonstrated since 2013, we've inflated our, our homes have inflated by over 20% more than equivalent homes in the local area. And we can specifically link that inflation to the placemaking initiatives we rolled out on site. Uh, at EP, it was down to starting site in the first place. That was a scheme that had been talked about for 30 years but never started. So activity on site produced growth in pricing. Uh, then completion of the first phase. And then more recently, completion of the park and the main shopping streets. Each of those create that step change, um, which puts it out kilter with the, the local pricing. On socioeconomic, um, that's kind of one of the key parts of the DNA of Lendis. And we roll out socioeconomic betterment programs in all of the projects we work on, uh, principally because it's key to our public sector partners and communities that surround the areas we're working. Now, until recently, we weren't actually measuring the benefit that those programmes came in any comparable way. Um, and we were relying on testimonials and just the evidence we'd undertaken programmes. What we've now introduced in the last couple of years, in partnership with an organisation called Symmetrica, 
we've established what we call a social value bank, which puts a, a numerical pounds value on key socioeconomic betterment principles, enables us to collect the value that we're creating from each of those programmes, compare different programmes, and therefore prioritise programmes for future rollout, and also enables us to compare ourselves against what others are doing in the market. And because this is one of our kind of USBs as a developer, we're really keen to come actually capture the value of what we're doing and roll that out and, and you know, broadcast that. On sustainability, um, there's a wealth of measures, so carbon, circular economy, uh, climate resilience, etc. And we, again, more recently, we started tracking against each of those areas of sustainability with metrics against them. Uh, for example, we're rolling out uh, carbon budgets for each of our projects to demonstrate not just carbon in use, but embodied, embodied carbon. And that's to help us reach our, our targets in those things. We've committed to net zero carbon by 2025 steel carbon by uh, 2040. So we're measuring ourselves against those targets to demonstrate how we're, how we're um, achieving. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, Christine, with your experience of um, being one of the leading architects um, with regard to placemaking and master planning, um, how do you find your clients are adopting um, the measurement of the value of, of, of placemaking? And, and do you sometimes find it slightly frustrating that perhaps um, the economic or the commercial value overrides uh, other elements that you as an architect are trying to introduce into a scheme? Right. Um, am I on? So I think I'll start with the first part of that question. I think it's really um, interesting that clients are beginning to move. I think architects have a real challenge in um, balancing their principles and their ambitions for achieving high levels of sustainability against the value and then you get the value engineering process and things like passive house, all those things start getting cut out. So it isn't, we aren't there yet, but in my experience is more of the placemaking side and I'm currently working on a project called Maybeck Green Route, which is for the Maybeck Neighbourhood Forum. So it's a community-led initiative where we are, um, as we were just saying in the last session, introducing greenery that add not just green but sustainability and social value into the a strip of Maybeck that links High Park with Park Lane. And we're working with our and their sustainability team there. And we've set up a set of KPIs that will under our kind of key themes of greening Maybeck, of um, health and well-being and of climate change mitigation. So against those, we've got topics and then we've got measurements of means and also the means of monitoring it. And some of the parts of the monitoring will be actually with the local community to help sort of measure things. But it will also be about dwell time, foot, foot forward increase, and how people are using the spaces. Um, so yes. Great, thank you. Um, Paul, could we come to you as an investor in places, and obviously with your experience at both at Crown Estate and now at uh, Australian Super. Um, what, what, what measures do you require or do you see with regard to um, the places in which you invest? Uh, morning, everyone. Well, I think we've all got the same problem here, really, is that at the end of it all, the principal measurement of value which is recognised across sectors and within the sector is going to be measurements like total return, IRRs, ranking growth, house price growth, which, which you've mentioned. And 
that ends up being the default position, which we all at the end of the day use. And we've, everyone's got their own additional metrics to measure the value of a place, which they wrap around these. But the problem with that is that they tend not to be consistent. And it's also difficult, I think, to put pound signs against absolutely everything, because it's almost as if microeconomics uh, have overcome the, uh, the values of the Enlightenment when you when you look at it that way. And if I were a public policymaker, I would encourage developers through the planning process to produce output-led development, so specific outputs that you wanted to see from them. Coming back to the financial metrics for a minute, I think the big change will be that although we're consistently we're going to end up using these same metrics all the time, it's, it's, all, it, it's all the system really provides us with on a consistent basis, but what goes in to producing those metrics will change. So for example, if you have assets that can't meet the zero carbon agenda over the relatively short term, they will become severely stressed. And that will be reflected in the rents you can get and the yield out term, for example. It's particularly an issue for commercial buildings. So what I think we'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll use the same metrics, but the inputs that are driving the way those metrics move, I think increasingly are becoming broader. Great, thank you. Um, just picking up on one of the questions from the, from the um, audience from the last panel about how perhaps 15-minute centres or placemaking has changed from the pandemic and that led on to um, Roger's answer, I guess, I think was with regard to actually, it's been happening for a number of years anyway, change has been happening for a number of years anyway because of the sustainability question, questions, etc. or, or, or um, points. Um, but a question for John, really, John. Um, are the KPIs of measuring real estate changing in today's world off the back of um, perhaps even the pandemic as recently as that? But, but are they generally changing the KPIs that, that you're seeing from your, your experience from advising developments on schemes such as King's Cross? I think from a, um, a service provider in terms of our consultancy service provider for cost management, um, we are at the front end of all of this because ultimately our figures, our numbers are what drive uh, the immediate value out of a, of a master plan scheme. And having worked on uh, King's Cross now for over 15 years and having seen that develop from cradle to grave, the, the KPIs have, have ultimately changed in terms of the way we, we value and put construction costs together. But actually, materially, as Paul was saying, we still have to make it viable. And so therefore, our, our short-term goals are very much to work with our, our developer colleagues to ensure that a scheme can get off the ground. And then once the scheme gets off the ground, the placemaking part of uh, a master plan becomes very uh, important. So if I take my example from King's Cross, which everybody knows very well, you know, that was all predicated around the University of Arts and creating a place where students would come, those students would then drive um, people, environments, and off the back of that, the whole development had um, a pricey to be able to bring other tenants, create public ground, create an environment. And so over a 10 plus year scheme, that was so important right from day one, basically. Great, thank you very much. Um, John, other John, could I bring you into this here? We're, we're sitting in a, in a fantastic uh, development which I'd not been to before. Um, but uh, John's company 
Um, Ballymore have been responsible for the development of City Island and other developments obviously uh, in this area are ongoing. Can I ask you to bring some of your experience on the development of, of this place um, into um, how you how you quantify how you quantified some of the initiatives that you brought to this place? Um, yeah, well, City Island. Um, the I mean, if, you, if you stood here in 2014, I think it was, and we pictured us doing it kind of side it nearly looked like walking on the moon. It was an old um, food processing plant, and we just demolished everything. And it was um, it was you know Canning Town was probably. You know, one of the one of the toughest areas in, in, in London, and um, huge kind of social problems, um, and and, and um, so so yeah, it was a, it was a completely different place. And to be honest, it was one of those projects that again a lot of people just never believe would never happen. And so it, it, it was a, it was a difficult one. I mean, we, we felt we had a few kind of things going in our favour. So firstly, the geography of the site, just the fact it's actually a peninsula, but it, was, it feels like an island almost entirely. Um, and I think we thought we felt that was unique to have an island in the middle of a city. Just felt felt was something that we kind of cling to. And I think that Canning Town Station, you know, we were opposite the Canning Town Station, albeit with no access to it. So, like getting that bridge, that piece of infrastructure built to get us across was, was really important. And then I suppose the third thing we felt, which was we now call placemaking, but we kind of felt, you know, we can't let this just be another load of flats built on a big site in East London because there's lots of examples of that. Um, and you will you you will just you will track house prices you know as a, a, as the experience down at Coffin Park but you will not you won't see that growth so we always said we need to put a vibe down here we need to make this place feel like it's completely different it's not like an area wharf it was never going to be a or Kings it was never going to be a commercial centre like Kings Cross um, and you know everywhere it can't be Kings Cross I think. and that's the other thing about whether it's a fifteen minute city or placement this was always going to be led by residential what we felt you know. Culture could be at the heart of it, and um, we, we worked really hard to try and find out. Well, how do we, we, we design some spaces that could, could hold some, some anchors? We did a lot of work with the English National Ballet, and, and they were probably, notwithstanding, they were they weren't the first cultural uh, initiative we did down here. It was one of the, it was it was the moment that when we did the deal, I think, with them to move from Knightsbridge down here. I think that kind of gave us credibility that we were creating something different. And at this point, it was this was all still. You know, we were looking at CGIs and fancy marketing collateral, but there was no, you know, I think there's a, you know, there, 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 there's always that level of skepticism at that point in the, in, the, in the process. So I think we did that deal. That was, that was, um, that changed people's minds in terms of what this could be. And what was really interesting then was that we started to find people who were attracted, whether it was buying homes or coming down here, people were really attracted to that idea that this was kind of going to be this little kind of creative enclave. Uh, so we like people like Ian, you know, we're, we, 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 we met along our journey, set this place up, uh, and lots of different we're music studios, we've another gallery, we've got people making uh, clothes and dresses and jewellery and all sorts of different things happening around Holland. Um, and I think that, um, you know, in terms of how you quantify it, I still remember, you know, we did the, when we did the English National Ballet deal, I mean, that was a building that, you know, was heavily subsidised um, by ourselves to try and make it work. I mean, we did it. We did a study at the time. We, we did a forecast. I can't even remember if it was right or wrong. I think we did a forecast that we were going to raise everything by hundred pounds a foot if we did this deal with the, with the ballet. But in truth, it wasn't. It wasn't the ballet in itself. It was. It was. It was giving credibility that things could happen on the ground floor and that something interesting would happen down here. And I think what you know the nice thing for us in City Hall, and this is not King's Cross, and this is not kind of a commercial hub where you have thirty thousand people coming and going to work every day. 
But if you look at the ground floor, these, the, and if any of you go on the tour, these are independent businesses who set up their business. And they, almost all of them live on the island. They've set up their businesses on the island. Like this chocolatier, I think, is one of the ladies, one of the, that's going to show us what she's doing. Like she, it, most of the stuff that she's selling is on Instagram, online, but she needs her shop front. She needs somewhere she can be based to make and to show what she does. Uh, and that has been, it's the same with the music studio across the road, the same with the art galleries that we have, we have two of them here. Uh, we've got, as I said, fashion designers and makers and jewellery makers and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think, so it's, it's, it's um, so yeah, so, you know, I, 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 we don't have metrics in the same way, I don't think, I don't think we kind of, we were as, as kind of, but we believed fundamentally that if we could add this social value, that that would ultimately come back to us uh, on the value of the homes. Um, and I think, you know, again, we feel strongly it worked and it did come back. Great, thank you. So that's clearly an example where perhaps there's more intuition, a developer's intuition with regard to um, uh, an initiative with regard to a cultural um, facility that will then bring a, a additional value going forward. Do, do the other panels, the panellists have examples of schemes they've been involved in where um, they, they can point to good examples of cultural initiatives or social initiatives which have then really acted as the, the sort of the anchor tenants, the, uh, the, 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 the trigger for uh, creating additional value that you can then measure? Ed? Um, not a cultural one, but a, a natural one. So uh, the scheme in Elephant that I was talking about, Elephant Park, uh, there we worked as a result of the engagement we did with the local community. They told us how important the trees were to them. So this was the old Haygate estate were 415 40-year-old um, London plane trees, which we had presumed we were going to be removing because that's the master plan we'd inherited. But by working with the local community, they explained to us the importance of those trees. So we worked with them to change the design, move plots around, end up saving 115 of them, and and committing to planting an equal cabot value in the local area. So the end result is we've, we've actually um, saved 128. We then have planted 1,400 trees in the local area. And the value of those trees to that development makes it look like a place that's established already rather than a new place. So by working with the community and working out what they valued, it's added value to our homes and our ability to rent our buildings and sell. Christina, yes, please. Just picking up from obviously um, we have a connection to Ethan Park, but also to the Royal Docks here and the notion of cultural placemaking, because we talk a lot about placemaking, that term's been around quite a while, but cultural placemaking seems to me to be a bit of a new term, and we've worked on a couple of projects with um, Culture Mark, the City of London, and the World Dots Cultural Placemaking right here, links to um, City Island as well. And I think, as Ed was just saying, what our role was, not only to produce the strategy, but to do a massive engagement project across the area, both with stakeholders and landowners, but with the local community. And in doing that, we identified aspects, assets that are there, hidden talents that will actually help shape that future of that community and of the Royal Docks, a massive area to try and come up with strategies. So it was, it was made up of a number of places. But I think the importance of um, doing that at an early stage, and we now have a 
the new London Plan that talks about early engagement. So policy is shifting towards um, doing things right before you have plans or before developers have developed their plans. So we had conversations about what was happening in Silvertown. And so the framework that was produced by the cultural placemaking strategy is actually helping developers think about what the role of their area should be in that bigger picture and how they can connect with um, local initiatives and talent that's right there on, on their doorstep. Paul, did you want to come in then? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an important message coming through here that developers have to genuinely engage with the existing local community and avoid the tendency of well-meaning middle-class people to deliver things they think working-class communities ought to want and actually listen to what's valuable to them. And, and, and earlier, Roger Madeline's audience was um, very eloquent in, in describing quite how bad King's Cross was before it got redeveloped, which was true, but equally around King's Cross, there were communities already existing and they're still there. And what we're very concerned to do now is to make sure that the community initiatives we run genuinely come out of what it is that people who live in the area want, not what we think that they ought to have. Uh, I was just going to add to that in that um, there's a little bit of synergy. I'm also working in Canada Water with Roger. I don't follow him, I promise. Um, and um, one of the things that we've been doing recently is working with Global Generation, who are a, um, a small enterprise, basically, that works with local communities and they uh, create places that the local community, children, and so forth can come to and basically engage in activities, whether it be growing vegetables or perhaps talking or whatever it may be. But this was in Denmark when we were, uh, started King's Cross um, back in the early 2000s where we had what was called the Skip Garden. And basically it was formed of skips being put at the back of a German gymnasium and they were used to grow plants. And then eventually that, that whole scheme became intrinsic in, in King's Cross. I think it's now called the Story Garden. And we now have the Paper Garden at Camden Water. And part of the success of that is that whilst it also engages with the local community, which is fundamental to, the, to how we're set up, it also helps to um, bind the development team together as well. Because what happens is, is because the um, developer, in this case British Land, will contribute to how that is set up and started, the, con the contractors, the local supply chain will all be involved in providing um, recycled materials or waste materials or, or whatever it may be to basically help fund something that has, has got no money. So it becomes very much a binder to a master plan. And I've seen the success of it at King's Cross, and now I can see the success of how that will evolve at County Water. Um, and it's certainly a very important part. Yes, Christine. Just quickly to add to that, because we worked on King's Cross and did the consultation on the framework plan. As well as that, which is fantastic, and I love the local generation, if you're aware that through the process of engaging the community, the one thing that came out as a really key local asset that they didn't want to use was the gasometers and they were due to be removed. And the result of that strong local voice, those gasometers had to be taken down and relocated and then repurposed or given more sort of um, uses. But that wouldn't have happened without that strong kind of engagement right at the beginning of the process. And they are now a feature of the project. Uh, Christine, I'd like to pick up um, with the panel, please, about a, a comment you mentioned earlier about good policy influencing placemaking. 
And I'd be particularly interested in the developers' views on the panel, whether they regard um, policy to be acting as a barrier to good placemaking and creating value, or uh, give examples of where uh, place policy has, has assisted their, their schemes. John, could you elaborate on your views on policy? Yeah, I think, um, I think uh, we, where we see real challenges, and it's probably even less on these like, big regeneration projects like this, we can take a view on value growth over a number of years and we can invest in, in kind of placemaking or what happens on the ground and make sure. But I think where, where policy kind of falls down is on an infill site. So if you're building 150 homes on an infill site, you know, somewhere in East London, and you know, the, normally the kind of the policy will dictate that you keep the ground floor free for either some commercial, retail, non-residential space. And very, very often we see those spaces, those spaces uh, boarded up with nothing happening in them. A lot of it is, if you look at kind of even these spaces, and if you look at kind of the, where we are today, the fit out, like, I mean, the, okay, there's concrete and there's, you know, it's not expensive for it and that, but I think the cost of fitting these things out is tends to be all the mechanical and the electrical, making the, the, them habitable. Um, and that is that can be quite expensive, and I think the um, so I, I think by not recognising those costs, and, and particularly on things like viability, I, I, I personally feel at the moment within London that you know really the the, the, the kind of success of a planning application is totally regarded based on how much affordable housing is given. And we all know we need more affordable housing, we need more social housing. Uh, that's something that the city absolutely needs. But in terms of creating places. And giving a mix of uses, and you know, we all we talk about a fifteen-minute city, and I think, you know, we're saying here, actually, it's just stuff you need locally to you, whether it's a supermarket, whether it's a chemist, whether it's a kind of a, a school or whatever. That's the kind of stuff you, you really need uh, close to you, uh, just for convenience, and so you don't have to travel long distances to get it. And um, I think, I think that uh, that lack of, of uh, I suppose, acceptance that it takes investment to make these types of spaces work. Um, is something that is flawed in viability assessments. I think that's something that, you know, we, we're in, in addition to that. I think, you know, we talk about how we how we valued the placemaking on this site. And we actually at, the, at a time we did a calculation. We said we're going to, you know, we're going to raise values by whatever it is, and, and that's going to justify all the all the investment in, in, in what happens at the ground floor. But because also now within our viability assessments we have review mechanisms that mean that ultimately the council is going to capture the uplift in value. And I think the principle around that makes sense because they're going to say, well, actually, if house prices rise uh, in the country, you know, it's, it's right that uh, it shouldn't be just for a developer to kind of get the full benefit of that. And I think for general house price rises, most people would say, well, that's fair. But I think the problem with it is that if you're ambitious and you're trying to you know, create a new place by adding value, it kind of caps the return you can get. So from, for a developer like us, this, this particular development predates these, these kind of um, review mechanisms. But what it, what it kind of would force you to do, if you were to just look at the numbers, and if you were to just look at the financial return, um, all of a sudden, rather than making an argument that I can add all this value, create, create a great place, and by creating a great place, and increase house prices, which is going to cost me a few quid, but I'm going to get it back. Um, but it actually kind of, because your, your return now is capped, um, it, it, it does undermine that, it, you know, it, it undermines, commercially undermines, I suppose, um, the, 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 those, those kinds of initiatives. So, in my mind, I think when we look at 
a viability of a project. I think we should look at it far more holistically than just basically number of affordable housing that you can afford. And I think it needs to look at all those sort of things, uh, including you know, whether it's educational, whether it's cultural, whether it's retail, uh, whether it's workspace, and, 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 and you know, have a proper holistic viability, which, which we don't really have at the moment. Ed and Paul, would you concur with that? Do you, do you, do you feel that policy uh, is acting as a barrier to um, to your returns and uh, and therefore is it uh, acting perhaps as a disinvestment for you um, at the moment? Not especially. I think it's got more to do with how commercial sectors value things. They, the other side of that equation is that whether you're a pension fund or a public company or whatever you are, there are certain metrics which are very two-dimensional that determine the success or otherwise of your outcome. And they bump up against matters of public policy and consequently end up in quite a binary conversation in that respect. And the, the sooner we find sector-wide and business-wide metrics that allow us to properly value the benefits and the disbenefits of what we do. We only have to think about climate change and carbon pricing and all the debates that go around that to see that we're still some way off of it. So I think it's, it's, it's always, to my mind, too easy to blame public policy or, or planners. And you have to look at both sides of the equation. Ed, do you want to come in there? Just, just a couple of kind of comments around that. Firstly, um, I think it's, it differs between different sector classes. So, for example, on uh, our workplace assets, we're finding there's a lot of investors and tenants who are demanding um, carbon standards over and above policy. So, in a way, policy hasn't kept up with what the market demand is there. Whereas on residential products, a lot of other occupiers don't seem to actually weigh sustainability into the decision-making process to the same degree. Now, in my outside London climate resilience is a big thing, obviously flood, etc., and even in some bits of London, but uh, less so in our sales species. It's not often we hear owner occupiers talking about sustainability ratings in buildings. It's all about pricing area and kind of the locality, location. Um, so, maybe... Yeah, in, in the, I guess in the resi instance, the, the kind of standards for uh, sustainability and resi is potentially higher in policy than the kind of customers want. Um, generally, I guess, uh, back to John's point, in terms of the stuff that makes place, the quality of the public ground, the kind of ground floor uses, the retail uses, generally it's the, the, the asset pricing that uh, pays for that. So the house price is paid for the re- subsidised retail units, subsidised quality of the public ground. And if in that viability process, the inappropriate benchmarks are being used by local authority with schemes which don't have the same quality in place, maybe use kind of chain retail units rather than local independents, which don't get the same quality in place, but it's being used to judge the cost input into the viability. That can be a problem. I was quite interested in your comment there about um, sustainability and um, occupier demands with regard to sustainability. Um, and, and, and I think what it's really saying is that the current building regs is um, are, are meeting the demands of the majority of your uh, your potential occupiers. I was wondering if the panel, through their experience, um, uh, when trying to attract very high quality tenants, um, place uh, placemaking 
um, emphasis on their marketing material in particular with regard to the sustainability and, um, and other cultural elements of their, of their marketing material to, to really emphasise the, the benefits of that scheme to, the, to their occupiers. Paul? Um, yes, well, you, you know you're doing a good job, and this is it's happened several occasions under the Crown Estate when adjoining developers and owners are in their marketing material telling everybody about the benefits of the public realm and everything that you've done adjacent to them. So there's, there's no doubt in my, my experience that the quality of the spaces between buildings and what goes on on the ground floor is a huge determinant of the quality of occupiers that you can get. And I think that's particularly true in a big way at King's Cross, because let's face it, who would have gone there 10, 15, 20 years ago? And even at the Crown Estate, when we would develop at the margins of this state, so we would come down south of Piccadilly, which is where the Crown Estate's office and St. James Market now are, that was nowhere between Lower Regent Street and, uh, as it was then called, a haymarket. But if you improve the public realm, if you do interesting things on the ground floor, then you can attract occupiers and command values that are indistinguishable from corner for us and gentlemen. Great, thank you. Um, one of the schemes I'm working on is, um, is the Wembley Park scheme with Quintain, uh, which is an 88-acre site, which uh, I don't know if many of you have been to, but many of you will remember that years ago when you'd go to the stadium and you'd get off the tube at Wembley Park and you'd literally sprint to the stadium as quickly as you could, you wouldn't stop for any food and beverage, and you'd sprint back fearing for your life. Well, the estate has changed, and uh, that's through good placemaking, in my opinion. But one of the metrics that we are witnessing, and and my my company's role is uh, managing the retail on, on the estate, and we let and operate the retail on a turnover basis. Uh, and that basically, basically means that the, the development of the landlord, Quintain, their interests are directly aligned to those of their tenants. And therefore, they are heavily incentivised to make a good place. Because without that, uh, without that investment in placemaking, um, that, that, that they, they're, they're not going to get the customers the footfall through the scheme or the dwell time. And if they are investing, they see the returns directly through the rent. And I think that's quite, um, that's quite innovative. It's taken uh, reference from the Designer Outlet Village concept, which they, they do have there, um, and, and elsewhere within the country. But I think it's a really good example of a developer that is willing to um, perhaps put their money where their mouth is and, uh, and, 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 and really uh, con- consider good placemaking, provide the cultural assets that the estate needs and the, and the environmental assets that it, and, 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 and greenery, etc. But also, to make sure that the, um, the, the footfall is being driven and because that's going to drive the rents and that uh, ultimately comes back to what we're talking about, which is creating value. I think probably one of the things I would say is having seen you know, a number of large schemes developed over the last few years, that a developer who can put that sort of capital cost down to start off with, because it is dead money, until you provide your, your buildings, your tenants and your value, that money is out the door. And so you have to keep things rolling once you've done that. I think um, it is intrinsic, and for all the reasons we've just discussed, it's really, really important. But not all, not all people do it, unfortunately, because A, they can't afford to, or B, they, they're not quite sure that it gives the value that, that they so deserve. Christina, please. Just to add to that, I think that um, what you said is really good. I'm working for a local project, which I won't name, 
was um, delivering a mixed-use scheme who had very high ambitions initially for the um, retail and commercial areas in terms of being quite imaginative, innovative, looking at industry, retail connected to it, community spaces, really, really kind of ambitious project. Who is at the same time being advised by a company like Savills, who's taken where they can actually make the money, and hence, and are looking at the future tenants who are going to be living here rather than the existing community. So they are they are definitely targeting that. So they're being pulled so they can see where you know, economically they would be better sort of, to look at. And then when they've looked at the value of the whole sort of project, they've worked out it's unsustainable. And so the area has been reduced, and rather than and, and the kind of the therefore potential for it to deliver all these wonderful things that we talked about in the first stage of the project is, I think, really challenged. But I sort of wonder why they can't be a little bit more imaginative and you know, looking at what you've just been talking about about this space and the cost of the space, rather than just taking a QS's kind of valuation at sort of base value saying it's going to cost. Look at how you make a facade, look at how you create a shell space. You know, create a space that maybe in the short term is much more adaptable, much more affordable. You know, I, I just sense that sometimes we have these systems in place to measure things like value. And they are based on square meter prices that are given rather than somebody actually saying, what well, how could we do it for half the price? They do it on the continent. I think this part of it I do think is, is about what the occupiers both have the capacity to do financially and technically. Because a lot of independents who want to take spaces like this, they don't have a professional team that they can get to design it, they don't have a contractor they can get to build it, they don't have that expertise and they can't afford it, and they also don't have the capital. I think the, what we did in, in City Island, we just basically fit all the, most, almost all the units, we just fit them out like this. I mean, it was literally walk in. Uh, if you were selling something, you just put shelves on the, on the walls and you start selling. If you're Ian's doing a gallery here, like, okay, he, he, basically he got a shell and he, he, all of the, the, um, the presentation and the, uh, stuff was his. But um, it was something he could set up in, a, I think it was a couple of days, or it was really, you worked pretty hard over, over, over a very short period to get it, get it open. So I think getting, you know, someone said in the last presentation, you have to make it easy for people. I think by do, to do that, you have to, the, the developer has to put the capex in at the start to make these places easily accessible and easily accessible to, to, to local independent businesses. And I think most places, unfortunately, there's some great examples where this has gone well, in, there's an awful lot of area around East London where you go to these estates and the, all these places are bought up for the simple reasons that no one can afford to put that, that, that capex in at the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or independent operators can't. I, I totally agree with that. We, we found that we need to handhold local independents much more than, and give them the skills and help them in the process. So it's extra resource on our side to get them through and, and capital incentives to, for fit house, etc. Um, one trick we've learned is uh, to avoid the big bucks of getting the chains in early because um, you always will make more money if you get a chain, um, but you won't create the place value that you're aspiring to. And then the second thing is to retain control of our retail units. So we as developers tend to kind of design, build, uh, and sell the assets at the appropriate time. What we do before that now is take the headings of the ground floor within our own retail um, uh, company, and we curate the retail over the lifetime of the project. So rather than independent building owners having control of that space, we have control of the space and control of that ground floor, which is critical 
especially when you come to lots of affordable housing. So we're still turning for them into the room for affordable housing. Um, therefore, it's critical that the retail is inclusive. It doesn't just cater for the the, the five quid coffees and the kind of the, the kind of East London hipsters. It needs to allow for families who are on very low incomes. Um, and that doesn't mean creating affordable retail units, because the first thing affordable retail units is you can end up with people who are buying five-pound coffees from a tenant who's paying quite low rent. What we need to do is create an affordable retail offer. So we need the equivalent of a local Greg's or a liberal uh, local run equivalent to those, as well as as well as the hipster place, and create a kind of diverse mix which caters for everything, and therefore creates a place which is sustainable for long term. We are nearly out of time, I'm afraid, but I was just wondering if there are any questions from from the floor. Great, couple of hands go up. Uh, yes, me. Uh, I am an artist and I used to rent a studio space on the island so I just want to bring my perhaps more critical uh, thoughts on cultural placemaking into the discussion. Um, I think as an artist and as many artists I've spoken to who have been in similar situations um, renting spaces offered by developers and new property developments, um, I think my feeling is that artists and cultural producers are just kind of essentially used for the value they kind of pertain to give to a development, um, but not actually supported in any kind of long-term or meaningful way. Um, To give an example, when I rented the studio, which was just in the building across there, um, there was one moment when someone from Ballymore, I don't know who exactly, (laughs) um, emailed and asked, uh, asked me and some other tenants to tidy up the inside of their studio. Um, this is a space I was obviously paying rent on, and I was like, uh, that's that's my work, it's not mess, you know, I'm making sculpture, I'm making objects, of course it's going to look messy. Um, so I'm just wondering how much of an understanding developers actually have of art and culture. Do they realise that the majority of artists are um, essentially working for less than minimum wage, and their supposedly affordable spaces are actually very difficult to pay for? Um, and, yeah, I mean... It's essentially just about selling properties. How can it be more than that? Thanks for your question. Um, I, I guess through my experience of uh, creating retail places, this you know this is a this is a, a, a learning experience for developers as well. I'm sure. Um, it, it, I, I personally think that the introduction of the arts and creative spaces, as as they all have done here, it is essential. We can't rely on the cookie cutty cookie-cutter sort of model of the past where every sort of every community has just got a Greg's or, or whatever uh, as Ed as, was as saying. So, um, perhaps if I can pass... Yeah, I mean, apologies if someone actually <laughs> clean up your mess. Uh, I'll speak to them later on. Um, I think, listen, you know, I'm not saying everything's perfect, and if you've had a, an experience that, that, that it may be less than perfect, but I think the, the, the reality is that... Um, we have tried, like in terms of that, I'm guessing it was in the Artbikes um, uh, workspaces. Yes. Yeah. I think the um, we, you know, massively discounted, subsidised. So what we what we've done is we've provided that space at zero cost to Artbikes, 
so we, we, we are getting no income from that. We fill out the space to a similar specification as this, and to help them fund their gallery, we've allowed them to uh, let out that space to artists like yourself at a discounted rate, and that funds their gallery. We, we, so, I mean, possibly we do try and keep the place looking as well as possible, so I'm, I'm not saying no, no one would have said that to you, and apologies if that is, uh, you're, I'm sure you're working hard on something. Um, but but uh, overall, I think the providing spaces like that at that discounted rate for, for people like yourself, notwithstanding that incident, I think that uh, I still think that's a right thing. And it, and, and it, it's uh, it, you know yes, we want you. Yes, you, ultimately there is a commercial kind of we want to kind of get great. Um, I suppose to get a bit of soul into a place, you need you need people who aren't just. Constantly working to to try and try and uh, to, to always differential gain. That's the way you think about the arts. I mean, it is it is about more than that. I'm attracting people like yourself down here is something that we try to do. Yes, ultimately we have the sinister goal of of, of, of uh, increasing property prices. I suppose uh, you know we, we, that is part of part of the reason we do it. But but I still think that kind of accommodation and providing that cost low cost accommodation. Uh, if, I think if there was more of that in in, in, in around East London, I think that would be a positive thing. I would also just just go back to the point that uh, I'm sorry, I've got the gentleman who, who owns this gallery who mentioned at the start. But placemaking is not just about the developer's initial setup and, and development of the scheme. It's about the ongoing curation and operation and culture, creating cultural events going forward, um, which uh, you know two elements to the equation, which I think are very very important. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I was. Um, my name's Jamie Kerr. I, I sort of work more outside London than inside London, but um, I also did work for LCR for a long time, who were the landowner Kings Cross and Stratford, um, and I also sit on the board of the Development Corporation, not too far away from here. Um, so the interesting thing that um, I just wondered around so many developments and the ground floor has been boarded up, and trees not created the same amount of space. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Manchester uh, 10, 10, 15 years ago. So absolutely, I think you're doing a great job here and so on. Um, and I think that uh, there is possibly a, a sort of public-private sector opportunity, because certainly um, in Stratford we're looking at taking control of the ground floor units so that we can curate them as a whole in the place, which I think is quite an interesting idea. I'm just, I, I, I suddenly, that's what I was going to ask before um, the, um, the, 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 the artist sitting in front of me mentioned uh, art. And, and there, there is a bit of um, a history of um, art having creatives, you know, like in Shoreditch, and then it moves to Hackney Wick, and now they're being moved down to Hackney Wick and they're going to Margate or whatever. You know, I'm just sort of saying that. And I think that some, there are some interesting. Um, uh, this is a very interesting precedent, and it did it didn't involve philanthropy. I mean, Folkestone, where Roger de Haan has um, endowed the um, artistic quarter, because it you know it is it does help sell, but then you know it's it's maintaining that artistic and cultural thing. And obviously, um, you look very committed to. It. I wasn't saying this in any critical way at all. With English National Valley, it will will continue to create that community because you know, I'm lucky enough. To live in Islington, so I have sat as well as in Almeida, and is why I still want to live there 28 years old. So I think it does help to make the community, uh, but just to be, um, I sympathise with your, with, with, it, it's a difficult, it's a difficult dichotomy. Do, do any of the panel want to come back about the continuity and, and um, maintaining the culture that's been created rather than 
it being moved out and uh, out further each time a, 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 an area is gentrified. I mean, I, I guess I've got two comments about that. The first one would be working on the Royal Docks and down at the Albert Basin, where I think it's Boat kind of provided yeah. spaces. Yeah. It's messy, it's creative, it's wonderful, and you know, it's part of its character. And everybody's doing their individual projects, and you can look in the windows and see it all. So I think that's that's brilliant. I think we should be thinking not just about artists, we should be thinking about the community. And they are a cultural member of the community, they're just local residents. And when we worked on a project in Northfields in um, uh, out in Acton, the thing we discovered was that the, there were um, aspects of the community where our data was saying, from the, the socioeconomic data was saying, there's plenty of social facilities, it's all, it's all fine, you don't need to provide anything else, but our on-the-ground discovery through lived experience was that there were a number of barriers for the community to access either a facility or to pubs that all closed, and that they, what they really were trying to do was establish a um, community festival, but they couldn't do it. So our client there, St George, actually funded the first community festival, and then through that process, they, that's now an ongoing um, event that happens every year, and it's fantastic because it brings everybody together. They celebrate themselves. Yeah, I think so. Let's not just remember culture isn't just artists. It's Every one of us who contributes to a place is the community. And just to finish on that, I think the point is well about the kind of, and there is that sense, you know, that you know, using the arts as a way to kind of get commercial gains, kind of, and I think the, to, to give that long, one of the things for we, what we do around that long-term commitment, so it's not just for the sales period, not just to make the marketing suite look good, um, we do retain all of our freeholds, we do retain all of our retail spaces, um, and we, and you know, from a pure, this more private business, pure reputational perspective. I mean, we are, we do have that long-term commitment. I mean, there's no easy answer to that because ultimately, um, if, if that case was different, and ultimately if you're if you're competing commercially for spaces, then uh, as a place becomes successful, inevitably, you know, wealthier businesses start to move in. So it's a, it's a difficult one to answer. But I still think by starting a place in the right way and setting the tone at the right at the start, you can't you can't guarantee everything forever is going to be is, is, is going to be right. But I think that's it's, it's the right. It's a good way to start. Great, thank you. Um, we are well over time, I'm afraid, um, so no more time for questions. I would just like to summarise by, by saying clearly, you know, from a development point of view, it always comes back to the key, key matrix is it, it's creation of that value and, and, and uplifting value. But I think it's been very interesting today how we've expanded from that and talking about the pure, the pure maths of creating value to talking about some of the... Uh, some of the softer elements of placemaking in particular, the curation of cultural elements, sustainability uh, and landscaping, etc. So I'd just like to thank the panel very much indeed for their, for their input today. And uh, thank you all for attending. And I think there's a few minutes now for uh, more coffee or, or at least uh, a, bit of, a bit, bit of networking. Thank and, you. And just before we, we have a round of applause, don't forget the tours. There are going to be tours at the site. If you want to go on the tours, feel free to meet outside. And thank you so much for watching the panel. Uh, so that was quite boring, no one's saying anything particularly interesting. Um, pretty much just everyone saying really great things about what they're doing, 
positive impact they're having and yet no one talking about the huge problems of social cleansing, displacement, the fact that affordable isn't affordable. Asset Arrest, your global agent for accessing the property you can't afford.